Hello my dudes and welcome back to Nightmare Fuel. I hope you are all having a lovely start to your year. It's cold and it's dark and we don't have any fun holidays to look forward to anymore, so I can understand if you are struggling a little bit because same. Uh, the new year is always super tough in my opinion because there's all of this pressure to like start over and have a fresh start, but that is just very tiring sometimes. So if you're trying to stick to any New Year's resolutions uh, this year, I wish you good luck. But if you're like me and are just kind of freeballing it and hoping to make it through another one, we got it. We're gonna kill it. It's fine. Either way, I promised you a big one this week and I think I'm gonna deliver because today we are going to be talking about the Zodiac Killer. I do want to give you a bit of a heads up that this episode is going to be a two-parter. My notes for the first part were like 20 pages long, so I'm not too confident in my ability to read out loud for more than that. Once I get this episode out, I do just have to finish up the notes for part two, and then I will try to have it out within a week of this one, just because I know I wouldn't want to wait more than that for the back half of the episode. But before I get to the Zodiac Killer, I do just want to talk a little bit about uploading and a schedule if I have one. So I currently don't have a set schedule for uploads, which isn't really a problem because no one is listening to this yet. But I am going to shoot to put out at least once per week. I do have a job and a house and two pets to take care of, and my weekends are usually reserved for my boyfriend just because we work opposite schedules during the week. Um, I think that one episode a week is a pretty good starting point and something that I should be able to maintain pretty well, and if it develops into something bigger, I'll put out more than one a week. With all of that being said, um, if an episode does need to be split into two parts like this one, I will try my best to release them both in the same week, again, just for the sake of the listener. I know cliffhangers can be a bit annoying, and I don't want to make anyone wait too long for the conclusion. Um, also, my boyfriend helped me move the podcast slash computer desk set up to upstairs, which has been very nice and motivating that I don't have to go to the basement. Um, but the only spot for it was right next to a window. So I do apologize if you hear any rogue noises or like people screaming. I do live in a city and it can be pretty loud sometimes. Okay, well, with all of that out there, uh, let's just jump right in to the story of the Zodiac Killer. It was around 10.15 on December 20th, 1968, when two high school students on their first date parked their car on a little gravel path off of Lake Herman Road in Benencia, California. Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16, and David Arthur Faraday, who was 17, had originally planned their first date to be going to a Christmas concert that the Hogan High School was putting on. However, their plans changed. They decided to hang out with some friends before grabbing dinner at a local restaurant called Mr. Ed's, and from there, they went to Lake Herman Road, a popular spot for young kids on dates, as it was known as a lover's lane. After doing whatever two teenagers do at a lover's lane for 45 minutes, another car pulled up next to them shortly before 11 p.m. Now, we don't know exactly what happened because there were no witnesses and the killer was never caught, but forensic evidence suggests that a man fired multiple shots into the vehicle in an attempt to force the kids out. It's believed that Jensen exited the passenger side of the vehicle first, followed by Faraday shortly after. 
The next gunshot was aimed directly at Faraday's head, where he was hit at point-blank range. This just means that the shooter was very close to Faraday when he was shot. Now, Jensen saw her date get shot in the head and immediately turned to run away, because obviously. This was when the shooter let out five rounds into her back, killing her instantly. Again, since there were no witnesses, it's assumed that the killer fled the scene shortly, if not immediately after these killings. Very soon after he fled, a local woman named Stella Borgs was driving by the scene and noticed the bodies of the two teenagers. Stella's witness statement to the police accounts that she saw no other cars driving in either direction while she was on Lake Herman Road, and that once she saw the bodies of the two teens, she sped at 60 or 70 miles per hour to report her findings. She immediately began to drive towards the police department in Benencia, but ran into police captain Daniel Pitta before she could arrive at the station. He recalls arriving on the crime scene at around 11.28 p.m. When police arrived at the scene, they found David Faraday lying on the ground next to the car with a gunshot wound to the left side of his head. Now, David was actually still alive when police got on scene, but he died en route to the hospital and was unresponsive throughout that ride, so he wasn't able to give police or medical personnel any information on the person who shot them. Betty Lou, on the other hand, was dead upon arrival of the police. She was found about 28 feet away from the car, her purple dress covered in blood from the five gunshot wounds to her back. From those wounds and the casing found at the crime scene, police were able to identify the murder weapon as a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol used with Winchester Western Super X copper-coated long rifle ammunition. Holy shit, that was a mouthful. <laughs> police also confirmed that there was no indication of any robbery or sexual assault on the victims. I want to take a second to kind of go off on a little sidebar here about how good of people these kids were. Um, everything I could find on them said that they were super good kids, just very smart and well-behaved. David was described as the all-American boy and a boy scout. One article even stated that he confronted a weed dealer and threatened to report him to police. So like, he very clearly cared a lot about doing the right thing and trying to be a good person, even if it meant he was a little bit of a narc. Eventually, he began to develop feelings for one of the popular girls at school, Betty Lou. Betty Lou was described also as smart, a talented artist, and having many friends. She was very popular, but not in the mean girl kind of way, but in the way where everyone that met her liked her. Betty Lou actually wasn't allowed to date until she met David, so she was very excited to be going on her first date in general, but also her first date with David. And that just, like, really fucking hurts my heart, man. Like, knowing how exciting it is to go on a first date, especially with someone you really like, and then neither of them were expecting anything even remotely similar to this happening. Which actually leads me to my next point. The police had no idea why this happened. They couldn't find a motive or any reason that anybody would want these two teenagers dead, especially in such a brutal and vicious way. Really, the only thing that they could come up with was a schoolmate of David and Betty Lou who was jealous of their relationship. Police questioned an unnamed young boy who was said to have had a crush on Betty Lou and who was very outwardly jealous and upset about her and David's budding relationship. However, the boy had an alibi for the night of the murder and was let off as a suspect. 
This wasn't a very dangerous area in California, and things like this just usually didn't happen, so the town was very shaken up by this random double murder. Eventually, the noise and the media tension surrounding the murder of Betty Lou and David died down, and a lot of people in the Bay Area thought this was just a one-off, random killing that would go unsolved. They were half right. About seven months later, on the night of the 4th of July in 1969, Darlene Farron, aged 22, and her friend Michael Magoo, aged 19, took a trip to Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, California. Darlene was a waitress at a restaurant named Terry's, and Michael was a skilled laborer. This location was about four miles from the murder site of David and Betty Lou. They parked in this isolated location to talk apparently. Do with that what you will. Shortly after midnight, another car pulled up next to them, potentially a light brown Ford Mustang or Chevy Corvair. A man exited the car with a very bright flashlight, which made Darlene and Michael think that this was a police officer coming to check on them, since they were parked in this off-the-beaten-path area of the park. However, as I'm sure you guys can infer since I'm telling you about it, it was not a police officer, and the man started firing off shots at the car with absolutely no warning. After he fired off those initial five shots, three of them hitting Darlene and two of them hitting Michael, he turned to walk back to his vehicle. While Darlene sat dead in the driver's seat, Michael was still alive, and let out a scream, which made the shooter turn back and unload two more shots into each of them. So, four more shots total. Michael was able to get a pretty good look at the shooter when he came back. The shooter was described as a white man between 5'8 and 5'9, which I never understood how people were so good at guessing height like that, <laughs> in his late 20s or early 30s, with a stocky build, round face, and brown hair. This sounds pretty much like every single unsub in a Criminal Minds episode, so I think it checks out. The shooter turned away again, this time actually getting in his car and leaving. About 45 minutes later, the Vallejo Police Department received an anonymous call from someone claiming responsibility for an attack at Blue Rock Springs Park. Now, obviously the police didn't know about this yet because, again, there were no witnesses, it was well past midnight, and it happened in the middle of nowhere. So, at first, they thought it was a joke, but they sent some officers out anyway and did, in fact, end up finding the body of Darlene and Michael still barely alive. The man on the phone claimed to have shot two people, a couple presumably, and was able to correctly identify the gun that was used as a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. While he had the police on the phone, he decided to also take responsibility for the murders of Betty Lou and David. Since everything this man said ended up checking out with the facts, police launched an investigation into the nameless man on the other side of the phone call. Police were able to trace the call back to a gas station phone booth located only three-tenths of a mile from Darlene's home, and just a few blocks from the police station itself. At first, the police began looking into Darlene's husband, Dean Farron, for the murder-slash-attempted murder at Blue Rock Springs Park. There was definitely a motive, seeing as Darlene was hanging out with her pal Michael alone in a secluded area, so police thought it was most likely just a case of jealous lover. However, that did not end up checking out, given the information provided on the phone call. Dean also claimed to have been unaware of Darlene's quote-unquote friendship with Michael, 
had an alibi that he was working as a cook that night, and there was also just no connection between him and Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday. The police also briefly looked into Darlene's ex-husband, James Philip Crabtree. However, no connections could be found there either. Now, even with Michael Magoo's description of the shooter, the traced call, and even fingerprint evidence found at the crime scene, police were not able to find any leads on who this guy was. It was about a month of nothing until July 31st, 1969, when a letter arrived to each of the Vallejo Times Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. The three letters all came from the killer, claiming responsibility for the three murders of Jensen, Faraday, and Farron, as well as the shooting of Magoo. They contained details that were not released to the press, meaning that this person had to have been there to know the information that was included in the letter. Aside from his confession or claim of responsibility, each of these three letters contained a third of a cipher, which, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is just a type of a code that needs to be cracked in order to find a hidden message. He claimed that his identity would be hidden in this cipher if it was decoded right. So it's no surprise that this guy wanted and was living for the media attention. So in the letter before the cipher, he demanded that all three of the publications who received the letters would print them on the front page, or he would, quote, cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end with a dozen people over the weekend, end quote. The letters were obviously not signed with a name, but with a symbol resembling crosshairs you would find on the scope of a gun. The next day, all three letters were published, not on the front pages, but that seemed to be good enough for the author of the letters. The cipher was decoded a week later by a couple with the names Donald and Betty Hardin of Salinas, California. It's widely accepted to have said, and please bear with me while I read through this, quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that, that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and all I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or atop my collection of slaves for my afterlife. Um, now, you're probably wondering why I read it like that, and it's because it is full of spelling and grammatical errors. And it also incorrectly quoted The Most Dangerous Game, a novel by Richard Connell, about a man hunting the passengers of a luxury yacht for sport. So definitely some connections there. The cracking of the original cipher came a few days after another letter was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle. I read conflicting articles stating this letter arrived either on August 4th or 8th of 1969, but regardless, this was the first time that the killer identified himself as the Zodiac and was writing a response to police chief Jack E. Stiltz, who made a comment about needing more proof or information that this mysterious letter writer was legit. In this letter, he released even more details about the murders and the crime scenes, further proving that this was, in fact, the man responsible for the crime. Police didn't really have any way of tracing where these letters came from, and they weren't able to collect any evidence from them either, at least other than the letter themselves and the linguistics. Things kind of stalled in the investigation until late September of that year. 
September 27, 1969, a young couple were reportedly relaxing on a remote beach on the coast of Lake Berryessa near Napa, California. While just trying to enjoy a nice picnic date, Cecilia Shepard, age 22, and Brian Hartnell, age 20, were the next victims of the Zodiac Killer. They were both students at the time. Cecilia went to the University of California at Riverside, and Brian was at Pacific Union College. It was around 6.30 p.m. when they noticed a strange-looking man approaching them on the beach. They described him as wearing a black executioner's hood and a waistline bib that had the same crosshair symbol that was added to the Zodiac letters. He approached them, pointing a gun in their direction, and claimed to have been an escaped convict from Deer Lodge, Montana, who just killed a prison guard and needed cash and a car to flee to Mexico. According to ZodiacCiphers.com, Brian agreed, handing over the money that he had in his pockets and his car keys to the hooded man. At this point, Brian began talking to him, hoping to form some kind of relationship with this man threatening them, to hopefully get out of there unharmed. Again, this is kind of straight out of a Criminal Minds episode where the unsub is holding the last victim hostage and they're trying to get out of it, so they're trying to befriend him. Um, unfortunately for Brian and Cecilia, Matthew Gray Goobler would not be busting onto the scene to save the day. So trying to form a relationship with this man kind of backfired because he immediately took some clothesline from his belt loops and forced Cecilia to tie up Brian. He was dissatisfied by how tightly Cecilia tied the knots, so he fixed Cecilia's tying job and then tied up Cecilia himself. The hooded man then proceeded to stab Brian in the back six times and then moved over to Cecilia, stabbing her ten times throughout her back and torso. Her thought process was that if she wiggled around during the attack, um, it would minimize the damage that she was taking to, like, one area. Um, didn't really work <laughs> that way. She ended up just kind of taking more. Um, but Brian had a pretty smart idea and essentially held his breath and stopped moving, knowing that if the attacker thought he was dead, he wasn't going to take any more blows. And that worked. Uh, the attacker went off into the distance and back up the trail he originally came down, thinking that the couple were both dead. A man named Ronald Henry Fogg was on his boat in Lake Berryessa and heard cries and screams from the shore. He fired up his boat's engine and went to the Rancho Monticello Resort for help, where the message made its way to a park ranger named William White, which sounds like such a badass name. They immediately boarded a speedboat with a few other officers and hurried over to the scene to help out Brian and Cecilia. The couple were okay enough to shimmy their way out of their ties, and Brian shakily headed up the hill to look for help since he was in much better condition. It was then that another park ranger named Dennis Land arrived and picked up Brian, called for an ambulance, and met up with William White and Ronald Fogg. At 7.40 p.m., the Napa Police Department received a call from a phone booth at 1231 Main Street in downtown Napa. Upon answering, the caller said, quote, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They're two miles north of park headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. I'm the one that did it. End quote. The police dispatcher put out a memo to detectives, letting them know about the call and the location that it came from, and instructed officers to process any evidence that they found at the payphone. Unfortunately, the only retrievable evidence was a palm print that they weren't able to match to anyone. 
The couple arrived at the hospital at 8.50 p.m. that night, a little over two hours after the initial attack. And although they both survived that initial attack, Cecilia Shepard did end up passing away two days later due to injuries sustained from the stabbing. At first, police did not think that this was the work of the Zodiac Killer, mostly for these few reasons. First, neither Brian or Cecilia actually died in the attack. Second, in the first two attacks or murders, the Zodiac's weapon of choice was a gun. This one strayed from that, as the attacker stabbed the couple instead of shooting them, even though he had a gun on him. Third, this attack happened in broad daylight, whereas the other two happened pretty late into the night and in a very remote area. Lastly, there was a witness here. Zodiac had been careful in the first two to make sure that there would be no witnesses, but left one on the lake during the attack of Brian and Cecilia. However, in the days following the attacks, Brian Hartnell described the killer as having brown hair, being 225 to 250 pounds in weight, and 5'8 to 5'10 in height. This matched the physical description of the Zodiac killer from Michael Magoo to a T. Brian also stated that the attacker had a, quote, unique way of talking, end quote, described as a drawl or an accent. During the police investigation at the crime scene, they found a size 10 and a half boot print separate from what the couple were wearing, and they were later identified as military boots called wing walkers. They also found the couple's car, the Volkswagen Carmen Ghia that was mentioned on the phone call, with Vallejo 12-20-68, 7469, September 27th, 69, 630 by knife, with the Zodiac's crosshair symbol written on the door with a black marker. Now, just looking at the message on the car compared to one of the cipher letters I mentioned a little bit ago, it's pretty clearly the same handwriting. Like, I'm not an expert by any means, but they look pretty identical to me. Despite the damning evidence outlined above, since the method of killing strayed so far from what the Zodiac had done in the past, some investigators believed that this could be the work of a different killer. Uh, the most popular theory being Mr. Theodore Bundy, who I will most definitely talk about a little bit later down the line on the podcast. Only two weeks later, on October 11th, 1969, a white man hailed a cab at the intersection of Mason and Geary Streets in San Francisco. The driver of the cab was Paul Stein, a 29-year-old taxi driver on his typical shift. This passenger requested to be dropped off at Washington and Maple Street in the Presidio Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. For some unknown reason, uh, maybe traffic or avoiding a particularly steep street, if you've been to San Francisco, you know, uh, the cab actually ended up about a block away from the original requested destination with the dead driver. The passenger ended up shooting Paul at point-blank range with a 9mm handgun, took his wallet and car keys, and tore off a section of his bloody shirt before giving the taxi a wipe down of any fingerprints he might have left behind. The killer then fled on foot. Luckily, or unluckily, as we will find out soon, <laughs> there were three direct eyewitnesses for this crime. A group of teenagers actually noticed the murder take place and called the police while the killer, the literal fucking Zodiac killer, was in the process of cleaning up the crime scene. Now, this sounds perfect, right? Three people with eyes on this guy from above, they should be able to provide a decent idea of what he looks like, you know, what he's wearing, the direction he goes in, right? 
right? Nope. Um, these kids or the dispatcher, we still aren't really sure who's totally responsible for this gigantic fuck up, fucked up and said that the killer was a black man between the ages of 25 and 30 years old. So when the dispatcher reached out to police in the area of the crime scene, they told them to keep an eye out for a black male assailant. Now, because of this mix-up, it is believed that two police officers, Don Fook and Eric Zelms, might have actually run into the actual Zodiac killer, but just ignored him because he didn't fit the description provided by the dispatcher in this case. The two say that they witnessed a white man between 5'8 and 5'9 and maybe between 35 and 40 years old with a crew cut walking along the sidewalk about a block or two away from the crime scene shortly after it happened. He was acting a bit suspicious, you know, just a little off, but ended up stepping into a stairway that goes up to a front yard of a home. So, literally the only thing different between the initial description was the race and potentially the age. So, um, it really does just look like the Zodiac slipped through police's hands here. The shitty communication about the description of the killer in this case wasn't the only thing that kept them from realizing that the Zodiac killer was right there in front of them. Police originally thought that this was just a run-of-the-mill robbery that escalated into a murder. There really wasn't anything that pointed to this being the Zodiac, no symbols, no phone call. It happened kind of publicly compared to the last three attacks, which all happened in kind of remote areas. Um, it wasn't until October 13th of 1969 that the San Francisco Chronicle received another letter from Zodiac claiming responsibility for this. And to really seal the deal, uh, he included the bloody piece of shirt that was cut from Paul Stein's body. This letter also included a cute little threat about killing an entire bus full of school children by, quote, just shooting out the front tire and then picking off the kitties as they come pounding out, end quote. After this letter was published, detectives Bill Armstrong and Dave Toshi were assigned to the case, and over a period of many years, the San Francisco Police Departments investigated an estimated 2,500 suspects in the case. Fortunately, Paul Stein was the last confirmed victim of the Zodiac Killer. Now, there are a couple more letters and ciphers to touch on before I go into the suspect theories and copycats and new developments in the case. I already touched on the first couple of letters, ciphers, and phone calls when they happened in the timeline, but they did continue coming in even after his killing stopped. Like I mentioned before, Zodiac loved the media attention he was getting and like essentially creating for himself. So there was actually a lot more communication with the last letter being sent in 1974. So he kept sending letters for five years after his murders stopped. At least the murders we know about. Since there are a decent amount of letters to go over, I'm kind of just going to do like a quick summary of each one. Um, but knowing me, quick is probably not going to actually be quick. Um, I'll try my best to keep it to the important parts. The next form of communication from the Zodiac, or supposed Zodiac, came on October 20th, 1969. The Oakland Police Department received a call from someone claiming to be the Zodiac Killer. He demanded that at least one of two kind of famous at the time lawyers would appear on a radio show called AM San Francisco. 
One of the attorneys, F. Lee Bailey, was not available to appear on the talk show, so attorney Melvin Belly was left up to the task. Once on air, Belly asked the audience to keep the lines open, and eventually someone claiming to be Zodiac called in. He gave the name Sam when asked if there was something Belly could call him besides Zodiac. Sam claimed to be afraid of being sent to the gas chambers, so he wouldn't give any more information about his identity. They had this call, and everyone was convinced it was really the Zodiac for a while, until that number was traced back to a patient in a mental institution. So it's written off that this was not real, and this will be brought up later. The next form of communication from the real Zodiac came in a letter known as the Dripping Pen Card and 340 Cipher that was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle on November 8th, 1969. You'll notice that almost all of the letters sent from here on out were sent only to the San Francisco Chronicle or one of their editors, since they were the ones to give him the most attention. The letter was written on a greeting card that donned a really bad joke on the front. It read, quote, This is the Zodiac speaking. I thought you would need a good laugh before you hear the bad news. You won't get the bad news for a while yet. P.S. Could you print this new cipher in your front page? I get awfully lonely when I am ignored. So lonely, I could do my thing! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I would like to establish that there were literally six exclamation points of that. Six. This letter, <laughs> this letter is kind of hilarious to me. I just picture this sad, lonely, middle-aged man sitting at his kitchen table, essentially th threatening to throw a tantrum like a three-year-old if he doesn't get to be on the front page of the newspaper. Again, this just goes to show how attention crazy this guy was. Now, this letter came along with a 340-character cipher, which was later dubbed as Z340. This stumped everyone. Zodiac definitely brushed up on his cipher skills because this one did not take two weeks to solve like the first one he sent. This took over 51 years to be deciphered. Um, it took multiple people, including a software engineer, a mathematician, and a programmer to decipher the code. So like the smartest people you can probably find. And 51 years is what it took to get this cracked. To no surprise, they found that the letter was nothing groundbreaking on his identity, just him denying being Sam, the person who called into that radio show claiming to be Zodiac. The cipher also stated that he wasn't afraid of the gas chamber, like Sam claimed, because he isn't scared to go to, quote, paradise sooner. The three men who decoded the cipher sent their findings to the FBI, where it was confirmed that this was the correct decoding. The next day, November 9th, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle received a seven-page letter where Zodiac claimed that two police officers actually stopped and talked to him after the murder of Paul Stein. This led to one of the officers I mentioned earlier, Don Fook, releasing that statement about him and his partner running into the man that fit the Zodiac's description. So this is literally Zodiac confirming that the police in San Francisco majorly fucked up and he could have been caught that night. <sighs> I wish I could say I'm shocked, but I'm not. Anyway, um, on December 20th, 1969, attorney Marvin Belly, again, the same one who was on the radio show, received a Christmas card of sorts from the Zodiac. I 
Personally, I'm not entirely convinced that this one actually came from him uh, because the writing looks a little different to me. And he's essentially begging uh, Attorney Belly to help him. Uh, this is a staunch difference from the letters that Zodiac sent before, claiming to not be scared of being caught and like he enjoys killing and he doesn't want to stop. Um, but again, this is widely accepted to have been a legit letter from Zodiac. But in this letter, Zodiac was begging an attorney to help him uh, before he committed more murders, even going as far as saying as he feels like he was drowning uh, note the spelling mistake. <laughs> the next letter came exactly four months later on my favorite holiday, April 20th, 1970. This one is a lot more convincing of a Zodiac letter. Uh, this one starts off with Zodiac asking if the cipher in the last letter had been cracked yet, which it wasn't, obviously, as we know. He then goes on to ask uh, how much money they, quote, have on his head now, end quote. And then goes on to make sure that he doesn't take responsibility for a bombing of a police station, stating that even though he threatened to kill a bunch of school children with a bomb, he wouldn't, quote, move in on someone else's territory, which is kind of confusing, and I'm not really sure what that means, <laughs> um, or if that was alluded somewhere else that I just didn't find. But regardless, he goes on to say that his kill count is now up to 10 people, and that it, quote, would have been a lot more, but my bus bomb was a dud, end quote. And he was, quote, swamped out by the rain we had a while back. So <laughs> motherfucker will literally murder people, but doesn't want to go out in the rain. Okay, makes sense. Attached to this letter was a diagram of his new bomb setup, where he showed his new plan for how he was going to blow up a school bus full of children. I'm not going to go into detail here for obvious reasons, but yeah, I don't, I don't think this is the same guy who was begging Mark Belly for help four months ago. About a week later, on April 28th, 1970, another letter came in where Zodiac demanded that the San Francisco Chronicle publish his plans about the bus bomb or he would actually do it. He also made a comment about wanting people to wear buttons with the Zodiac crosshair on them, stating that it would cheer him up considerably. This again, made me laugh. Like, this dude is so obsessed with people noticing him and getting attention and instilling fear that he's like, wear my button or I'm gonna blow up a bus full of children. It was another two months before the San Francisco Chronicle heard from Zodiac again. In a letter sent on June 26th, 1970, Zodiac expressed how upset he was with the people in the Bay Area as they did not abide by his wishes and make or wear buttons with his symbol on them. This new letter read, quote, This is the Zodiac speaking. I have become very upset with the people of San Fran Bay Area. They have not, underlined, complied with my wishes for them to wear some nice crosshair symbol buttons. I promised to punish them if they did not comply by annihilating a, a full school bus, but now school is out for the summer, so I punished them in another way. I shot a man sitting in a parked car with a 38. The map coupled with this code will tell you where the bomb is set. You will have until next fall to dig it up. End quote. This was followed by a little mini cipher that supposedly led to where the bomb was located. Um, now, I'm not entirely sure how bombs work, and I'm not sure I want to know, uh, but like, how is this bomb located or placed or wired <laughs> to only be set off by a full school bus? Like, 
it has to be placed somewhere that a bus would drive over, so a road, but I guarantee that there isn't a road that buses are driving on that would be dormant for the entire summer. I'm I'm just generally confused on this, but it's probably because it was just a lie or a scare tactic that Zodiac was using and not actually like a thought out plan that he actually went through with. Regardless, police never found the man who was supposedly shot, they never found a bomb, and the cipher attached to this letter has still not been solved. And the map was not any help. On July 24th, 1970, yet another letter came in where Zodiac was complaining about people not wearing his buttons. In this one, he says he has a list now, um, and it was starting with, quote, the woman and her baby that I gave a rather interesting ride for a couple hours one evening a few months back that ended in my burning her car where I found them, end quote. Now, this is referring to a woman by the name of Kathleen Johns, who filed a police report following an incident that took place on the night of March 22nd, 1970. Kathleen, who was seven months pregnant, was driving with her 10-month-old daughter to visit her mother in Petaluma, California. While driving on Highway 132 near Modesto, a car behind her began honking its horn and flashing their headlights. This prompted Kathleen to pull over, and the man driving the car stopped behind her. He got out of his car and approached Kathleen, uh, claiming that he saw one of the tires on her car was a bit wobbly, and he offered to tighten up the lug nuts for her. Now, this was 1970, and I guess she trusted him, and Kathleen allowed him to fix up the problem. However, when she went to get back on the road after he finished up, the tire immediately fell off the car. The man came back and offered to drive Kathleen and her child to the nearest gas station to get some help, and again, Kathleen, being a bit too trusting, <laughs> agreed and hopped into the car with her 10-month-old little baby. Now, clearly, this did not go the way this guy said it was going to. He drove past multiple gas and service stations without stopping for the help that he promised. Kathleen reported that she was in the car for around an hour and a half with this man, essentially driving in circles around isolated back roads. Kathleen eventually mustered up the courage to ask why he wasn't stopping, but the man would just change the subject without a real explanation. Eventually, he had to stop at an intersection. Kathleen grabbed her baby and jumped out of the car, running into a field to hide. The man was said to have gotten out of the car and began searching for Kathleen with a flashlight, yelling out that he wouldn't hurt her, but eventually gave up and left when she wouldn't come out of hiding. Kathleen apparently did not learn her lesson and hitched a ride to a police station in Patterson. This ride went considerably better, and once she made it there, she gave her statement to a surgeon that was on duty. While at the station, she saw a sketch of Paul Stein's killer and recognized him as the man who had held her and her baby hostage in his car. Police found her car completely gutted and burned, believed to be an attempt at hiding any fingerprint evidence that he might have left behind when he was fixing the tire. So back to Zodiac's letter, he officially took responsibility for this, quote, interesting ride, and threatened to find Kathleen and her baby and finish the job that he set out to do in March. Two days later, another letter arrived at the San Francisco Chronicle from Mr. Zodiac, and yet again, he was complaining about no one wanting to wear Zodiac buttons. 
he at this point is pleading with the public to wear them, saying that they don't have to be nice anymore, they could be nasty. He doesn't care as long as they get made and are worn. He came with yet another threat, uh, but this one was not nearly as convincing as his last two. This time he promised to, quote, torture all 13 of my slaves that I have waiting for me in paradise, uh, end quote. He then went on to explain some pretty creative ways uh, to torture people, including tying them over anthills and hanging them by their thumbs. I'm gonna leave that note there. Uh, it's just bullshit, honestly, and no one really cares what you're doing in your fantasy paradise, Zodiac. The next time the press heard from Zodiac was around Halloween, which is pretty fitting. He sent a greeting card with a skeleton on it and a nice little stylized message that again, just mentioned how he would be torturing his slaves in the afterlife. This letter was actually addressed directly to a reporter at the Chronicle named Paul Avery, and he was responsible for covering most of the Zodiac news that was going out on the Chronicle. Right after Paul got the Zodiac card with the skeleton on it, um, he got another letter sent to him, only this one was anonymous and claimed that there were ties between the Zodiac's killings and the unsolved murder of a student at Riverside College four years earlier. I'll get into this in a little bit, so just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but after he got this letter and did some research, Paul published his findings in the Chronicle on November 16th, 1970. Next letter came through on March 13th, 1971, but this time went to the LA Times instead of the San Francisco Chronicle. This is the first time in almost two years that a public entity other than the Chronicle received a letter from Zodiac. This one was essentially calling out the police, saying that if they ever wanted to catch him, they would have to, quote, get off their fat asses and do something, end quote. In literally the same breath, he did say, quote, I do have to give them credit for stumbling across my Riverside activity, but they are only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there, end quote. He claims to have sent this one to LA Times because they, quote, don't bury me on the back pages like some others, end quote. So he essentially closed out this letter by subtweeting the San Francisco Chronicle, who he had developed some kind of weird relationship with at this point. Now to what he said about his Riverside activity. This clearly ties into that murder of Sherry Jo Bates that happened at Riverside City College in the Los Angeles area four years prior. Sherry Jo was only 18 years old and was a student at Riverside. She spent the night of October 30th studying in the library until it closed at 9pm. Her body was found the next morning between two abandoned buildings, and it was evident that she was brutally beaten and then stabbed to death. There were no direct eyewitnesses to this, but neighbors did report hearing some screaming around 10.30 p.m. At the scene, police found a Timex watch that had stopped at 12.24 p.m., but police were sure that the attack happened earlier based on neighbor reports. Now, from this, it doesn't seem like there's too much to tie it to our boy Zodiac, but a month later on November 29th, 1966, two identical typed confession letters were sent to the Riverside Police and the Riverside Press Enterprise. In these letters, the unnamed author claimed responsibility for the murder of Sherry Joe, 
including details of the crime that were not released to the public. This letter also included the ominous message that Sherry Jo was not the first victim and she would not be the last. A month later, in December of 1966, somebody found a poem carved into the bottom of a desk at the Riverside College Library. The handwriting and linguistics are said to have matched the Zodiac letters and was signed with the initials RH. Now, I've seen the photo of this carving and I have obviously read all of the Zodiac letters at this point, and I do agree that they are eerily similar, if not the same. Six months later, after the murder of Sherry Jo, more letters got sent out where the murderer claimed that she had to die and there will be more. These have since been um, proven to not be legit. The man who wrote them called the Riverside Police Department in 2020 and confessed that he was the person that wrote the letters as a prank um, and a way to get attention. It's never been confirmed if this murder was actually committed by Zodiac, but he sure as shit wanted credit for it, so who knows. The next letter was received on March 22nd, 1971. Zodiac went back to his pals over at the San Francisco Chronicle for this one, and this letter was again marked directly to Paul Avery. It was just a postcard from the Lake Tahoe area, no message really other than just jumbled phrases reading, in no particular order, Sierra Club, around in the snow, sought victim 12, peek through the pines past Lake Tahoe areas, and the Zodiac symbol written on there a few times. Now, I'm going to try to keep this short because I feel like this is taking 19 years to get through, <laughs> um, but this also alludes to Zodiac taking credit for yet another murder slash disappearance. On September 6, 1970, a woman named Donna Lass went missing after her shift as a nurse at the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino. She left at 2 a.m. like normal and was never seen again. Donna's boss and landlord received phone calls from an unknown man claiming that Lass had left town due to a family emergency. No evidence other than Zodiac's letter has been found to connect this disappearance to Zodiac, and her body was never found either. Now, the last couple letters didn't come until 1974. So we went from getting something at least every couple months to radio silence for three years. There are a couple different theories as to why no one heard from Zodiac for three years, but I will get into that when I go into suspect theories. Once the San Francisco Chronicle started getting letters back in, they started getting shorter and less interesting and substantive. Um, I also noticed a change in handwriting in the last couple letters, so I'm personally not convinced that they were written by the same person who sent the first, like, 15 letters. But again, I am not an expert. Um, and some of these are considered to be confirmed Zodiac letters. It is widely accepted that the last fully confirmed, yes, this was the Zodiac killer, um, letter was sent on January 29th, 1974. This letter is basically just him praising the movie The Exorcist as the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen, and then threatened to do something nasty if this note wasn't published in the paper. All right, those are all of the letters and communication that Zodiac had after his murdering stopped, minus a couple at the end because no one thinks that they're legit, so I'm just not including them. 
Um, that was a lot. <laughs> so thank you for bearing with me. Um, I do think that this is where I'm going to pause for this episode and then I will come back with a part two. This is like 20 pages of notes right now. Um, so I just want to make these parts easily digestible. In the next episode or part two, I'm going to go over all of the suspect theories. There's a couple copycats um, and then touch on some current events that I haven't gone over yet and then run through some pop culture references. But that is all I have for you in part one. Stay tuned and keep your eyes out for episode two. It should be out within the next couple of days. I'm going to try my best to get it out quick. Um, but yeah, that's it for this one, my dudes. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening and good luck sleeping tonight.